Welcome to the Impact Podcast. I'm John Pryle. A while back, we did an episode of the Impact Podcast with an entrepreneur and investor named William Mugayar. It was actually our second episode and one of our most popular, probably because in it, William does a great job of explaining this really complex technology called the blockchain. This week, we wanted to revisit the blockchain and take a deeper look at its implications for financial services and digital rights management, among other areas. In this episode, my colleague Ben Wild, whose Kiwi accent you might recognize from previous shows, talks with Alex Tapscott, the CEO and founder of Northwest Passage Ventures. In addition to being an entrepreneur and venture capitalist, Alex is also the co-author of the book, Blockchain Revolution, How the Technology Behind Bitcoin is Changing Money, Business, and the World. Let's join in their conversation. Thanks, Alex. Look, maybe you could start off with, give us the, you know, the one to two minute overview of what this thing blockchain is and, and also why you're so excited about it. I came across this topic uh, the way a lot of people did, just by reading a little bit about Bitcoin in the news. This would have been back in 2013. And immediately I saw in it something really interesting, uh, or at the very least new, the idea that um, you could have this currency that wasn't issued or controlled by a nation state or by a supranational organization, and that these people out there were actually using it to buy things Um, trading it like an asset. And so it started as a curiosity more than anything else. Um, But the more I dug into Bitcoin, the better I began to understand the underlying technology, this blockchain technology, which I basically became convinced um, was going to be a very, very big deal. So this is back in 2014. I launched into a research project trying to better understand uh, Bitcoin before blockchain and really entered the vernacular. And that eventually led to a sequence of different research projects that I co-authored along with my father, Don Tapscott, trying to better understand the implications of this technology. We've become convinced, basically, that blockchain represents nothing short of the second generation of the internet. And as a result, I think it's going to have a really big impact on business and the world. So in the book, you talk about the promise of the original internet, this idea that we'd all be trading with each other, that it would be a shift away from the old world order. And then what's really happened is this this consolidation of money and power, which is almost bigger than anything that happened in traditional economic models. So you talk a little bit about that and, and why you think blockchain can you know tip that apple cart up. Yeah, absolutely. And that's totally correct. So The promise of the first generation of the internet was to enable a true peer-to-peer economy where anybody could be a producer or a buyer in an open market and that we wouldn't have to rely on firms as much to transact or do business. Except the internet is limited in its utility as a transaction platform for the simple reason that when you send or share or move information online, like say uh, an email or you host a website or you send a PDF, You're not actually sharing an original, you're sharing or sending a copy and you retain the original as a result. So that's actually a very good thing in certain use cases. It basically gives us a platform for the democratization of information. So if you have access to Google or Wikipedia, you can um, access all sorts of um, information you couldn't before. Um, So it's okay to have a publishing platform or printing press for information. However, when it comes to things of value, assets like money or stocks or bonds, sending a copy and retaining an original is a really bad idea. Because if I give you $20 in payment for something, it's really important that you know that you have that $20 and I don't still have it. Because if I can send 
that same $20 to a million other people, the $20 instantly becomes worthless. So um, this is an issue that cryptographers have been trying to solve for 20 years. It's called the double payment problem. And they had not been able to do it for most of the internet. And as a result, the promise of the internet was unfulfilled. So, I mean, is it really the, is it a technology issue with how the internet was built in terms of the protocols and things? Is it, is it how we use it? Like, what, why do you think that we got to this point where there's a lot more participants in economic activity now, right? So, the size of transactions gone down, the cost, the barriers of entry, the business have gone up. But typically, that's done on other people's platforms, right? So, someone's controlling the platform. But is, is that the main issue? Was it a technology issue? Well, the issue, the simple issue is that it's very difficult to verify the identity and establish trust with someone online. And as a result, we still rely on intermediaries in the same way that we did in the pre-digital era, but to a greater degree. So these intermediaries are familiar to many of their banks, uh, but also governments and big technology firms increasingly have become the arbiters of a lot of commerce online, like Google and Facebook and others. And though these intermediaries do an okay job, they have a lot of flaws. Um, the first one is that they're all centralized. And anything that's centralized is vulnerable to attack or hacking or failure. And we see this play out regularly. Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Home Depot, Target, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, the NSA, the State Department. Centralized systems that have all been hacked. Uh, the intermediaries also tax the system. So in the case of sending money overseas, it can cost 10% for me to send money from Toronto to Auckland or wherever you are in New Zealand. Um, and it's crazy when you actually think about it because we never talk about cross-border email, right? We, but we do talk about cross-border payments. Money is just information and yet we still have to pay these exorbitant fees. And one of the reasons is because the infrastructure for the financial services industry is old. It's antiquated. Um, you know, we would have had to rely on the SWIFT messaging system, which is built 1970s mainframe technology or ACH in, in the U.S., uh, the automated clearinghouse, which is also similarly designed, you know, 30, 40 years ago. I mean, it's older than I am. Before I go on here, just a couple other issues with these intermediaries. One of them is that they exclude two and a half billion people from the world, don't have access to a bank account. And you could argue pretty much that they capture an asymmetric amount of value. Um, that's been created. And the upshot of all of this is that in addition, they capture all this data about us as individuals, which prevents us from using it to organize our affairs, uh, but also potentially undermines our privacy in the process. So this is a big bargain that we have to make in order to do business online. Is when we deal with these intermediaries, we succumb to all of these flaws or all of these shortcomings. And unfortunately, it's prevented the promise of the peer-to-peer -peer economy that everyone thought would be made possible by the internet from coming true. So with blockchain, we, we have a solution, basically. So talk a little bit about that because, you, I mean, you've talked about peer-to-peer -peer a couple of times. So give me a concrete example of, of how this will work or does work today, say with Bitcoin using the blockchain and, and without an intermediary. Yeah, so all of this blockchain stuff started with Bitcoin back in 2008. You know, the global financial system was about to collapse and a group of programmers named Satoshi Nakamoto developed this thing called Bitcoin, which was basically a way to do cash on the internet, to make payments peer-to-peer -peer without using an intermediary, kind of in the same way as if you'd go down to a hot dog stand and buy a hot dog and a can of Coke, 
You know, you got you give the guy the cash. There's no intermediary in that transaction. And uh, it launched in 2008, and since then has worked splendidly as a way for people anywhere in the world to conduct business or transact without knowing each other. And in that regard, Bitcoin is really the first use case for this technology. But the idea is that blockchain is not just the technology behind Bitcoin. It's not just that it's based on it's a currency, but rather that it can be used to move and store and manage literally anything of value. So, for example, a lot of big banks right now are looking at it as a way to move financial assets, such as bonds and stocks. You've got people in the music industry who are looking at it as a way to simplify digital rights management by ensuring every time a song is listened to that a payment is made automatically rather than having to wait weeks or months for a royalty check to come in. You're seeing um, people in government looking at it as a way to solve identity crises in a lot of parts of the world, where you basically, a lot of government systems, their data is siloed, and they don't share it with each other because they're worried about data security. Well, if you have a platform that is very difficult to crack and is also encrypted and secure, then you can um, think about how more easily you can move information around. So that has applications in healthcare. It has applications in other government services and insurance, et cetera. It's being viewed as a way to enable um, journalists and other artists to monetize their content through what's called micropayments. Um, there are a variety of other really transformative use cases. One of the, Actually, one more that I'd love to share is this idea that you know, in, in a few years' time, hundreds of billions of devices are going to be connected to each other through the Internet of Things. And these devices are going to need a way to transact, to communicate information and communicate value to each other securely. So if you've got a solar panel on your rooftop that's generating electricity, it can now sell that directly peer-to-peer in a distributed power grid to your neighbor rather than into a wholesale rate into the centralized utility. Now, those payments are going to be happening constantly. We call it the metering economy where they're just constantly being metered out. And so as a result, they're not going to go through the visa network or the correspondent banking network. You need a mechanism to do that payment quickly and peer-to-peer. So you raised a number of interesting points there. Um, you know, one of which is, you know, I'm sitting in an established software company, uh, you know, maybe growth stage, building my business. Blockchain, I'm not doing blockchain today, but it's obviously becoming a factor. And if I operate a model that involves some sort of providing trust on behalf of other people or, or acting in some capacity as an intermediary, then I'm I'm potentially in the crosshairs. So I mean, well, you're either in the crosshairs or or it's an opportunity to completely reinvent your business, right? Do you see that happening sort of um, from, you know, ranked startups coming through with, you know, you talked about some some banks and things, but are you also seeing large established software companies come through and start to adopt this approach? Yeah, so I talked about banks and, and um, throughout history, leaders of the old paradigm have, have been able to adapt to the new. You know, I think about a company like IBM, for example, has gone through four different industrial revolutions and has gotten bigger and, and better as a result. But most of the time, um, leaders of the old have a real hard time embracing the new. You know, the innovator's dilemma of how do you cannibalize what you've got to, to start anew. And it's more likely that a lot of the big change that's going to happen in this industry will come from uh, emerging companies and new companies, which is good because, uh, you know, entrepreneurship is the engine of the economy. It's the source of new jobs and new value. And so I welcome that. But um, it's a, it'd be a mistake to think that this technology will only impact uh, established industries like, say, the banking industry, which has kind of been unchanged for many decades. One of the things we look at in the book is this idea of sharing economy companies like Uber and Airbnb and Lyft and TaskRabbit. 
because they're the disruptors, right? They're the ones who have disrupted an old industry, but it's them who are actually the most or one of the most likely to be disrupted. So in our view, Airbnb and Uber aren't really sharing economy companies. In fact, they're successful because they don't share. What they do is they aggregate excess capacity, drivers, rooms and houses through a centralized platform and resell them. In the process, they take a big fee, but they also capture the value. In Uber's case, $65 billion of equity value. So you can imagine with blockchain, rather than a company uh, as Uber, a cooperative that's sort of jointly owned by the drivers, where rather than uh, an intermediary doing all of the uh, coordinating and contracting and, and payments, it could all be done automatically through the system. Because in the end, what, is, what does Uber really do? I mean, it's a way for drivers and, and fares to establish identity of the person who might be picking them up or the place they might be staying. Uh, and as a result, to get reputation on who they are. It's a way to make payments seamlessly, frictionlessly. That's one of the great advantages of it. And it's a way for drivers, in Uber's case, for drivers and fares to contract with each other. So, you know, we don't, enter, we don't think we're entering into a contract, but in a sense, we are. You don't pay unless your driver takes you to where you want to go. And you have the centralized company that's enforcing and doing all of the process to make sure that that occurs. Each of those different functions, identity, reputation, payments, and, and contracting, can all be simplified significantly through blockchain. So is this the end of Uber and Airbnb? I don't think so. In fact, I think that these companies could actually create value by exploring these opportunities. And Airbnb knows this, which is why they recently bought a blockchain development company. Because maybe there's a way, you know, one of the big things with Airbnb is occasionally someone trashes the apartment and, you know, the reputation that they might have in Airbnb is not actually an accurate reflection of who they are. And so Airbnb sees this as a way to simplify and strengthen the identity and reputation component of their, of their offering. Yeah. And, may, and maybe the fees go down, but maybe they can do more because they have a better technology platform. Yeah. And then there's also the aspect of aggregation of demand and creation of demand for the services, right? So the payments could be uh, on a peer-to-peer basis, but you still need to find the people wanting a ride or find the people wanting an apartment, which isn't necessarily suited to a peer-to-peer model. So you may end up with, I guess, these hybrid models where um, an Airbnb is, is uh, aggregating and creating the demand for the service, but then the, um, the actual transaction is more direct between uh, individuals or companies. Well, I think, I think you're, you're right in the sense that there is definitely still a, a role for people here, <laughs> obviously, to create value. Um, something like Uber Pool actually requires a lot of really good engineering, and it doesn't just happen on its own. Now, maybe it will. Maybe, you know, in two years' time, we'll be talking about blockchain and neural networks running an autonomous Uber. But in the meantime, yeah, there's still a role for, for intelligent, for smart people with good ideas to create value. So there's a, there's a few misconceptions and things about the blockchain. And, and just sort of walk us through that a bit because you talked about it a few times. You know, it's this, this concept of a public ledger, which is immutable, can't, you know, can't be changed. You can't cheat on it. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because that is the underlying enabler, right, of what makes this this vision of a, of a peer-to-peer economy potentially you know, possible. There are a few big misconceptions, for sure. I think the most obvious one is that governments hate this stuff because they think of, when they think of blockchain, they think of Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is a threat to the current regime we have with fiat currencies. Well, we've talked to a lot of people in government uh, very senior people at central banks, and nobody has this view. This is a, a total misconception. They're pretty blasé on the subject of Bitcoin specifically. You know, one central banker said, 
if Bitcoin becomes a more and more systemically important currency, then we will hold it as a reserve currency along with the Swiss franc and the pound and the euro and, and all sorts of other currencies. But we don't really view it as a threat. Um, but on the subject of blockchain, they're probably one of the most enthusiastic stakeholders out there um, because in blockchain, they see an opportunity to radically improve the monetary regime, basically, um, which is to say that having a digital currency would help you to eliminate physical fiat cash from the system and reduce crime and improve regulation uh, simply because digital money is more traceable and harder to forge than um, printed versions. Uh, but more profoundly, there's an opportunity to use blockchain technology as a way to improve how you deliver central banking services. So central bankers, broadly speaking, man manage monetary uh, policy, act as a lender of last resort and provide financial stability, and work as a regulator in conjunction with other regulators to manage the economy. In each of those different roles, there's an opportunity for blockchain to improve things. So take monetary policy. If you were to say cut interest rates today with the hope of spurring lending and spending and growth and whatever, um, you'd have to wait a while to see whether or not your policy was effective because you'd have to check in with banks to see if their bo loan books had grown. You'd have to check in with retailers to see if their sales numbers had increased. But with blockchain, you'd be able to see the, the metadata of money moving through the system in real time. Uh, and that would give you the ability to monitor the policy more effectively. With something like risk, right now you've got to go independently vet every single bank's books to make sure that they're um, not taking on too much risk. And you see like the Basel III requirements, banks have to self-report all this information. Well, if transactional data was happening on a distributed ledger where regulators could see how money was moving through the system, they would know whether or not a bank was taking on too much risk. They would know whether or not a bank might be doing something wrong, like financing terrorism or trying to launder money. It would make them much more effective at what they do. So this is trend that some of the banks are doing where they're, they're setting up their own private blockchains. The, and the government folks that you've been talking to, has that been something that they've been thinking about? Is government operated blockchains or sidechains? Something like that. Certainly. Most central bankers are, haven't really come down on this issue one way or the other, yeah. uh, whereas I think a lot of banks have. Like, I think a lot of commercial banks are saying, we love the idea of, of secure, frictionless payments and better privacy, as in better data security. We hate the idea of opening up our bank to some network of random anonymous people to validate transactions. So our solution is that we're going to do what we think is best, take the best of Bitcoin, but remove the Bitcoin part of it. And that's where you see things like uh, R3. This is a big consortium of 50 of the biggest banks. Um, you see companies like Digital Asset Holdings, which is run by Blythe Masters, who used to be the head of JP Morgan's investment bank. And Chain, which recently just got a, a big capital injection from a whole bunch of big players. It's too early to say whether or not one of these will, will be more effective than the other. I think it's all, generally speaking, good. It's all R&D in the industry. When it comes to central banks, I think that more likely, I mean, this is just conjecture, but if you were to put a fiat currency on the blockchain, you probably would not use the Bitcoin blockchain. You would probably develop your own. And I just think it's too much of a leap for a central bank to trust a national currency to a network that they don't fully know or control. Well, it's a little bit like a flag as well. Um, you know, it's a pride thing and a, a sovereign currency has status. And so I'd be surprised if, you know, governments were rushing to give that up. Yeah, any solution that they come up with would have to ensure that they have the exact same type of control over the currency. They would never voluntarily relinquish any control over monetary supply or monetary policy or, or anything yeah. like that. 
And ultimately, that could end up resulting in disruption of their model completely, right? Because, you know, we're all a lot more global, we're a lot more transitory now, and so that does give rise to an opportunity for a, a new global currency to come through in the future, whether or not that's, that's blockchain. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen some really interesting um, announcements from central banks. The Bank of Canada announced that it's working in partnership with all the biggest private banks and this company, R3, to develop a digital dollar proof of concept. Uh, the Federal Reserve convened 90 central bankers from around the world and brought, brought together leaders from the blockchain industry to discuss the impact of blockchain. And then uh, Mark Carney, who's the, the governor of the Bank of England, said in his Mansion House speech, which is the biggest speech of the year, that the, the force likely to have the biggest effect on the global economy for the next little while is fintech and blockchain. But he stopped short of saying that the UK ought to move to a digital pound. I think maybe, given the recent turmoil in Britain, that he should probably change his tune because never let a good currency crisis go to waste. Why not treat this as an opportunity to reinvent the, the monetary system? The upside of that, obviously, would be London today invariably is going to lose global relevance. It's not going to go away, but it's going to wane if it decides to, in fact, stay outside of the European Union for the simple reason that euro-denominated assets can no longer be traded there and that a lot of banks would rather invest their money in another hub like Singapore, Hong Kong, or New York. So if they're going to maintain any kind of global leadership in financial services, which they have for like two centuries, then they'll need to take bold steps. And what bolder step would there be than to create a digital path based on blockchain? No, that makes sense. Um, hey, um, look, just I'll circle back to the banks for a second. So the to me, it seems there's a, a bit of a schism where a lot of the small startups are focused on consumer peer-to-peer. -peer. There's been a lot of Bitcoin wallets and investment and thought about how to do small transactions. On the other hand, the banks seem to be thinking about how to use blockchain to trade with each other and to move large amounts of asset or money around. So do you also see the banks starting to invest in the true peer-to-peer -peer stuff where you know, they're enabling individuals? And maybe that's not happening at banks in the West. Maybe it's happening in other parts of the world. Like, talk to me about that because that, to me, would be a sign that they were in this, not just from a defensive position, but they were actually really thinking about how to roll it out. I think eventually banks need to realize that this is going to impact every single part of the business. It's merely a tool to save cost in your existing line of, of business. Let's talk about banks for a second. So I think broadly speaking, and this is an answer to your question, fall into three different categories. So category one is I'm afraid. I don't know what this is and I don't understand what this is. And so I'm just trying to do my best to get caught up. That was the view of a lot of banks a year ago, maybe two years ago. I'd say these days, more and more banks fit into category two which is they're looking at this opportunistically, which is to say global growth is slowing down. There's increased competition from fintech startups and the regulatory cost is going up for my business, which means that my revenue is probably going to slow. So the only way I can drive ROE and equity growth in my share price is by cutting costs. So could I use this technology to strip out billions of dollars of back office expense from a whole bunch of business units? And, you know, Santander, a Spanish bank said $20 billion could be cut out of the industry just from using blockchain for public market settlement and clearing. And obviously the, the potential for other asset classes is equally large, if not greater. And I think that's a valid perspective for banks simply because they're focused on cutting costs and they're generally risk averse. But it's the wrong approach to take. 
Um, and that's where we get to category three. Category three are the banks and the financial services firms that are looking at this strategically. By that, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be thinking about cutting costs from my existing business because maybe my existing business won't be around in five to 10 years. Maybe we won't have market making uh, financial services firms acting as market makers, or maybe we won't have stock exchanges where people convene to trade securities because they'll all be done peer to peer on a blockchain. And so it's not really you know, logical to say what cost I will cut from a business that doesn't exist. So instead, how can I um, grow revenue, enter new markets, create new products using this technology? And I think NASDAQ is a really good example of a company that's doing that. So when you think about NASDAQ, think about a company that's in the business of trading stocks and bonds and financial assets. But NASDAQ doesn't think of itself that way. NASDAQ thinks of itself as a technology firm whose core competency is knowing about markets. So maybe it could use that knowledge about markets in something else. At our New York book launch, the head of blockchain strategy at NASDAQ did a demonstration where a person with a solar panel on their roof was generating excess electricity. And instead of just selling that back into the grid wholesale, NASDAQ has a software platform that allows them to take that energy and turn it into an asset, like a security, which they can then sell peer-to-peer in a distributed power grid to their neighbor or to someone on the other side of town, getting a retail rate rather than a wholesale rate. So they've taken an asset, which normal people never really traded, power, like that's, you know, people don't trade power. And they've found, they've created a way for individuals to become co-producers in the energy grid. And in the process, they might maybe down the road, securities trading no longer is as important. Listing fees cease to exist because companies don't list in the traditional sense. But NASDAQ will have entered into a whole new market by doing something that people would have never expected from them. Because they see in this technology an opportunity to do the impossible uh, or things that they weren't able to do before. So that's, that's the way that, that financial services firms ought to think about it. And to circle back finally, um, right now, I think they're just working their way in that direction. And those that don't think that way do so at their own peril. Makes sense. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about, I mean, you're obviously looking at uh, governments, yeah. but also startups. Uh, your, you've got your own business as well as the, as the book. So where does your, without you know, giving away too many secrets, where does your enthusiasm from a business and entrepreneurial perspective lie around blockchain? Well, I'm of the view that this technology is uh, going to transform a lot of different industries. So I'm not focused in exclusively on financial services. And I think that there are as great, if not greater, opportunities in other areas. So from my perspective, I'm looking for companies that are trying to solve problems in the wholesale finance market, how you move and clear and settle and manage large financial asset transactions, big opportunity. But I'm equally interested in the global unbanked, two and a half billion people who don't have access to basic things like payments and storage of value and credit. And any, and I'm looking for startups in the space that are going to solve that problem because big banks with their, you know, legacy infrastructure costs and their overhead aren't going to be the ones that solve that problem. Another issue is identity. You know, the biggest asset class of the modern era is data, but it's not owned or controlled by the people who create it, us. It's owned and controlled by intermediaries. And I think we're seeing an increasing backlash from people and governments who want to see individuals take more control of their information. So there are a bunch of identity startups that are trying to create, you know, an, a virtual you, a black box that you control, that you decide how your data is used rather than an intermediary. I think that could become the de facto passport 
for you know the digital world where you have this identity that you transport in different situations with banks with governments with your social network with your uber etc um so identity is one that's interesting as well and then the final thing is well not the final thing but one other area i'm really interested in is digital rights management which is this problem where artists have gotten more and more screwed through every single transformation that's happened from the record label industry to the digital download era to the streaming era where if you wrote a hit single in the 80s that sold a million copies, you'd make $45,000. If you get a million streams of the same song today, you can make 36 bucks. So that's a big problem. And it's, you know, it's something's got to give, basically. And I'm looking for situations in markets where the status quo is totally unsustainable. And I think it's totally unsustainable in this industry. So there are companies like Mycelia in London, STEM in California, Ujo Music in, in New York, that are trying to use blockchain and smart contracts to solve this problem. And here's how. Basically, a song isn't just music. A song is an intelligent agent that has in it licensing and royalty agreements so that whenever it's consumed, let's say it's played on the radio, streamed, uh, used in a film or, or TV commercial, sampled for a ringtone, the value at, the, at that point of um, consumption goes automatically to the creators of content and does so with different licensing and royalty regimes. So you stream it, it's a cent, you, you sample it, it's a thousand bucks, you um, put in a TV commercial, there's a different licensing and royalty regime. And DRM, digital rights management, is an area that is flawed, very flawed, and everyone knows it, from YouTube to Spotify to the labels and especially the art. And solving that would be multi, multi-billion dollar opportunity. Well, yeah, I mean, the internet is the world's largest copying machine, right? I mean, that's what it was designed for. That's the yeah. problem, is, is that music went from an asset to a free commodity because we could just publish it over and over again. And then once, and, once control and DRM was provided in the form of iTunes and, and other sort of streaming services, the, you, know, you had that shift of power. So, so that's what you're looking for. You're looking for... I'm looking for one or two opportunities in each yeah. of these five different transformational areas. Yeah. Disparity of power, right? Disparity in the relationship. So whether it's, you know, potentially venture capital firms in the LP relationship, like only certain people can invest in that asset class or whether it's the distribution and monetization of, of music, whatever it is, um, look, looking for those um, lopsided relationships, I guess, uh, is, is something that's... Uh, got potential for the blockchain anything where an intermediary controls an asymmetric amount of the value and could be disrupted significantly is an area that i'm interested in that was ben wilde talking to alex tapscott you can find alex's book blockchain revolution how the technology behind bitcoin is changing money business and the world on amazon or wherever you go to buy your books thanks for listening for the impact podcast i'm john priles